Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome. My name's Brendan. I'm one of the guys from around here. I've got the fourth uh, installment of this series, Make It Count. Uh, Last week, we heard from, from Andy Goulet, the boss frog, the head of Red Frogs, and he was uh, challenging us and talking to us about making it count with what is in your hands, even the simplest of things, the, the, something that seems almost um, you know, just so small that given to God can be amazing, and it was a, it was a great challenge to all of us. But uh, this week, I would love to look uh, and spend sort of the next 25 minutes just talking about work. Work And I've titled this message, if you're a note-taking kind of person, uh, I've titled it, uh, The Great Exchange, right? So work, The Great Exchange, how to make work count. I, I work in my job, um, me, I, I work, I'm a, what they call a product owner, I work for a software company, um, and I help to kind of figure out what sort of things we, we might build. We don't have an office, we are just sort of scattered around the world, anywhere there's an internet connection, me and the other guys that I work with, um, we, we, we build things, we send them to clients that we never see in person, with people we never see in person, and somehow I get money in my, my account every week, and so that's, that's nice, and that makes it account. But it's a, kind of, it's a very modern kind of work arrangement, right? And you, you may have something like that as well, or a work arrangement. And the, the crazy thing is that statistically, you will spend somewhere between 80 and 100,000 hours of your life working. I didn't, I didn't say at a job, I said working, and we'll kind of get to that. And aside from sleeping, it is, it, is, it is probably the greatest category of time in your life, is in if when you get to the end and you look back and you were to block up the time you spent doing things, work will probably sit at the very top of the most time you spend doing anything listening to music, you know, um, talking to other people, sleeping, work will probably be more than that. It is the greatest use of our most precious resource, which is time, something that you cannot get back. And interestingly, a a survey done in, in North America, in the US just recently, found that more than half of all people were unhappy in their work, unhappy with the greatest Um, most expansive thing they will ever do. So we start to think about it, like, what is is the point of all this? Because, you know, you've probably thought about this, you've probably looked at how much time you spent, um, you know, working, right? And and once again, I'm not necessarily talking about a job right now, like, let's think a little broader, and I'll get to that. Um, But, you know, we can easily start to become cynical. I mean, what's the point of it all? Is is the point that, like, you know, I work at a job that is just good enough that I'm not going to quit, to make just enough money that I'm not going to quit, you know, so that I can start to stack up enough money to buy a house and maybe a bigger house and get a mortgage and get a car and a bigger car and work my way through till I can afford a a caravan so that I can retire and go caravanning around Australia and then eventually die, right? I mean, is is that the story? Uh, of work? I mean, is that the point of it? Or is the point to keep up with the Joneses? 
you know, so that my house, you know, I could kind of get over there, move to the next nicer suburb in a slightly bigger house with two bathrooms and, um, you know, my car that I could get like a slightly nicer car and a bigger car payment and stuff. So, um, and essentially the reason I titled this The Great Exchange, because almost that's what work is. It is the great exchange of your life, the things that you exchange of your life for your lifestyle, for the things that you do, right? And that is really what, what work um, tends to be about. So what, you know, what do we do about that? Because you could start to get cynical about this and you think, okay, well, what would I do? Like, what is a Christian supposed to do about this? What should I do about this? Um, you know, the, the poison here is this modern Western consumerist culture. I need to escape that. I need to quit my job. I need to go live on a commune out in Kingaroy somewhere. You know, I need to escape the rat race and just live off the land, off the grid and um, it's with some other hippies or something like this. Um, you know, is, is that the answer to this? Is that the answer to, to work and what it should look like? Or do I go, no, if I can't beat them, I should join them, right? I'm going to join the rat race. I'm going to get ahead of the Joneses now. Like I'm going to work um, my fingers to the bone. I'm going to provide for my, you know, my family, and I'm going to, I'm going to accrue wealth, and I'm, I'm going to do well at all this stuff. Or do I go, okay, well, look, um, you know, maybe you're religious, you're a Christian, and you think, well, look, maybe I should be doing Bible college. I should quit my job. I need to do Bible college. I need to take up ministry, be a pastor, the important job, right? No, um, you know, and I should go, or I should be Mother Teresa, you know. Maybe I should give up this whole work thing and just think I should spend my life volunteering and giving to others. What are we supposed to do with the greatest chunk of our time this side of heaven? What should we do with this great exchange. Well, I, I have, I've been digging through the Bible a little bit this week. I've got a story and I think we could go through and I've boiled down to three points. Everyone say three. Three, Th- three points that I've got in a story that should help us practically to understand work, to understand what we should be doing, what God says about this. And I would like to use for our story, the story of Joseph. Now, some of you will have heard of Joseph. This is Joseph, not the father of Jesus. I'm talking about Joseph in the book of Genesis. Uh, that's the first book of the Bible, and it's sort of the last 10 chapters. And, uh, and since it would take me a little while to read through all those 10 chapters, I'm going to give you a quick summary of Joseph's life, and then we'll dig into some of the interesting parts of it to see what we can learn about work. Now, Joseph was the 11th son of a man named Jacob. Everyone say Jacob. Jacob, who would be called Israel, you've probably heard of that. Um, he was sort of like the, the father of, of 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, who would become the Israelites or God's chosen people, the Jews, right? And, and Joseph was son number 11, so he had 10 older brothers and then one younger brother uh, underneath him. Now, um, you know, Joseph was fortunately or unfortunately the favorite son. His dad made it very clear that you're the favorite one, gave him a coat of many colors. If you want to, um, you know, to generate some animosity amongst your family, just choose a favorite and give them a, a coat and see how that goes down. Uh, but that's what Jacob did in this scenario. Probably ill-advised parenting technique, if you asked, uh, if you asked me or perhaps Dr. Chaz and Fran, they might not say that in the in Designer Family book. Uh, but he did that, made him the favorite, and then things got worse because Joseph also started having dreams. He had dreams that his brothers and his parents would, like they were kind of symbolic dreams, would bow down to him. And he told everyone that. And his brothers and parents were like, well, that's not very cool. Um, you know, that's not good. That might be good for you. It's not good for us. And so great was the, sort of the animosity in that family that his brothers conspired to kill him 
right? But they relented and said, well, instead of killing him, let's have some common sense. We could actually make some money out of this. There's not much money in murder, but there isn't selling someone. So they actually sold their brother as a slave, made some money. He got taken. So Joseph gets taken down to, uh, to Egypt. Uh, what happens then is he's sold into a, a, a ruler. His name's Potiphar, a ruling uh, member of, of Egypt. And he's working in his house and kind of works his way, does well. Potiphar's wife takes a fancy to Joseph, and, uh, but Joseph kind of rejects the advances like a good, uh, he ran like Joseph, as it were. Uh, and he, uh, he was framed and put in jail, right? So, um, but back one slide back. Joseph was, uh, was in jail now. So he goes from being betrayed by his brothers uh, and, 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 and a family of hatred uh, into um, being a slave to an Egyptian ruler. Now he's in jail. Uh, he ends up interpreting some dreams and would go on to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh, the king of essentially the greatest empire in the world at that time, and was plucked then to be second in charge. He he rescues Egypt. He rescues his brothers who sold him and his whole family. So that's that's the story of Joseph there. I saved you reading sort of 10 chapters to get. We got through that in like two and a half minutes. I think we did pretty well just now. Um, And I want to look at this story because I think there are three points to Joseph and the Bible in general that we can know about the great exchange which is work. Are you with me? Are the rest of you with me as well? Good. I'm glad we got all of us here. Point number one, you are made to work. They say a person dreams at night about what they think about during the day. And Joseph was dreaming, although he was dreaming about his family, he was dreaming about work. Those were the illustrations that came to him. If you notice Joseph's life, even when he's introduced in the Bible, he's 17 years old, the first thing the Bible says about Joseph is that he was working. He was out uh, tending the sheep. And then what is he doing? He's tattletailing on his brothers. He brings a bad report of his brothers. So what he's doing, he's managing as well, right? Like self-appointed or not, he's managing. Um, Joseph is finding an excuse to be productive, and then it happens. He gets to, he's in slavery. He's productive again. He's in jail. He's productive again. He finds a means of being productive. Unless you think it's just Joseph, let me read um, from the start of Genesis. In the start of Genesis, God has, has uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives them four commandments. Roughly, they go like this. He says, number one, be fruitful and multiply be fruitful, multiply, go forward, be productive. Number two, fill the earth and subdue it, right? Bring the best out of it. Um, number three, have dominion, have authority, not domination, have dominion. Uh, and number four, tend to the garden and keep it. And what's interesting, if you think about it at this point, Adam and Eve don't actually have any needs just yet. They haven't sinned at this point, right? If you know the story, Adam and Eve are in the garden. God's put them in there. They live in this garden where all their needs are essentially there. But God says, I don't want you sitting in hammocks all day. I actually want you out there being productive. I want you doing stuff. And God has woven and given the calling to humanity to be productive. Notice, though, that God did not give them a career did not give them a job description or KPIs or a LinkedIn profile or a paycheck at the end of the week, right? God did not take that sense of calling, of fruitfulness, of productivity and plonk it within a job. Now, you notice so far, you think of the language I've been using. I haven't been saying your job. I've been saying your your work. Now, let's think of a definition. I'm going to show you here a definition of what I might define work as if you were to look through the Bible, Work could be any intentional, 
and positive activity to produce or accomplish something. That's good. It represents constructive, not deconstructive, constructive or creative effort. Service, demonstrating mastery over nature. And this big one here, neither confined, confined to the secular or the sacred. And I'll kind of get to that in a bit. But what I, what I want to do right now is bust three myths. Are there any Mythbusters fans out here? Are there any Mythbusters haters out here who hate Mythbusters? Good. Okay, good. We've got more fans than haters, so we'll do some myth-busting right now. I have three myths to bust about work. Myth number one, that your job is your work. That your job, a job, any job, is your work. See, a, a job, essentially, like an alcohol is something that like, we get paid, perhaps by a boss, um, to do at a set of, say, 37.5 hours a week, maybe more, um, and this is actually not something that was woven in by, by the Bible, by God. It's actually a very, very modern invention, very modern. Only in, very, in the last five minutes of human history have we taken this concept of a job and plonked it over the idea of doing work, so much so that we think that all work is doing a job. Now, the, the reality is there is so much more to work, to productivity, to being fruitful and multiplying that must fall outside of that. And many people actually do find themselves in a setting where they do not have a job, right? You might be a stay-at-home parent. You might be retired. You might spend the majority of your time uh, volunteering, right, or being at home, right? There's many, 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 many other aspects of life that you could say are productive, that bring good into the world, that are fruitful, that are not tied to a job. Sometimes I connect with my, my wife, so she works a couple of days a week. The other days, she stays at home with our, our two boys, uh, and I'm at my job, right? And she's not at a job at that time. And, uh, and I might text her, hey, how are you going? And she'll be like, oh, yeah, good. Like I took the boys to swimming lessons, teaching them not to drown in water, um, which there is a lot of that around. Um, and then I've been teaching them to, to read and stuff like that. That's when I'm like, wow. I've literally just been wasting time checking emails. That's like that's the main thing I've done so far this morning. And I look at the, the fruitfulness and the productivity and the output objectively of what she has done, not at a job. And I think, wow, that is inspiring. That is good work. And you, you will see that what it does to separate your work from your job actually reduces pressure on both. Think of it this way. If you look at your job and you said, my job is the only work I'll do, there's a lot of pressure then for that job to be awesome. You might have a job that is not particularly fun or boring or a boss that you don't like. You may not have a job at all, right? Like it's a very confining uh, aspect. And when you try to jam in all of the work and productivity and all that God has called you to do with your time and jam that into a job, you actually put so much pressure on that job to be everything for you. Almost nobody has a job that fills all of their work. It's not fair on the job. And interestingly, one of the things that can do for many people is and, and this is sad, like especially you know, fathers have tended to do this oftentimes is they look at their job and think, that is my work. And they give their best, their most creative, their energy, their potential, their life. They give it to their job. They sign off and they come home to their family, the place that needs so much from them. But they've already given their best. And now they check out. Work's finished for the day. Let me tell you, dads, work many times starts at the end of the day when you clock out of your job. Some of your best work, nay, Probably your best work if you are a dad with children in the home will happen once you get home or even before you go to your job. 
I mean, the greatest responsibilities God will give. Think of it this way. Right now, like I'm just let me let you in on something. Right now, I'm working. This for me right now is work. I feel that God, um, f- for me, I'm just being selfish for a second and talking about myself, um, has given me the, um, the task and the ability to try to create messages. And it takes me a long time. It takes me hours and hours and hours of, of digging to try and come up with this. And I spend at least 15 hours on my slides every week. No, I'm kidding. I don't do that. Um, but but it's, it's, I'm not getting paid for it, right? I'm a volunteer here. It's not my job, but it's my work. And I think many of you probably need to start doing some introspection about what you do with your time. When I said 80 to 100,000 hours, it's probably more than that. And it is not just confined to the workplace or the job. God has given you stuff to do, ways to be fruitful, ways to go out and multiply and have dominion and bring good into the world and bless other people. And it probably is not at your job. You may have a job that you hate. You may have no job, but God still has great work for you to do, right? Myth number one, myth number one that your work is your job. Much of your work could be your job and the other way around, but they're not. Don't equate them. It's a modern culturalism that probably for many people just needs to be snapped a little bit. Um, yeah, let's, let's leave that. No, number two, okay. Myth number two, a job in the real world um, is divorced from God. It's a myth that a job in the public sphere, outside of, a, say, a church or a ministry or something, you know, is, is somehow less spiritual. You see, if, if you're a believer in this, right, if you're a Christian, you've bought into this, you have surrendered your entire being to King Jesus, to the King of the universe, who is King over you, and He wants everything. Not as they want everything surrendered to him, but he wants to use you in everything that you do, right? And many times the church has done a bad job of this by suggesting that the important stuff happens in here and not out there. You know, every miracle Jesus ever did was outside the temple, right? Every miracle, right? Now, this stuff is important, but in many ways, like the, the role of the church and the role of this church as we believe it for, for years and years now, we've been saying it's not that you would somehow, st- as you come to church, that you would come more and more and more and start to like give all your important stuff here. If you are called to the public life, to the public sphere, whether it's volunteering, whether it's parenting, whatever it would be, whatever your work is, the role of this church is to equip you, to inspire you, to, to disciple you, to help you do that in the name of Jesus Christ and to the best of your ability, right? And that God has important things for you to do, that you are called to be a light in the darkness, not a light in the church. There's plenty of light. There's so much light in here right now. Like it's blinding the amount of light here. You you may need to get out to somewhere where it's dark and be a light. That's probably where God has for you to be the brightest light. You don't even notice if you add one more. You know, we, we need some lights out of this place, right? Now, now, I'm not saying many of you, many of us are called to work in ministry in the church. And that is, it's, such, it's a great calling. But this idea that you can somehow divide, that this is a secular job and this is a sacred job, it's, it's a myth. God has callings for you. And sometimes it will be different parts of your life. My job that I do, I get paid for, highly unspiritual. Like I'm, you know, working with code and developers and products and things like this. It's pretty unspiritual, but God has called me to, to work in that. But then some things I do, like I run a connect group, right? And that's like, that's work in some sense, right? It's work. I mean, so we've kind of got to do some mental thinking about this, but that's very spiritual. So sometimes it can be different, but both are things that God has called me to do. And this is when I get to myth number three, 
Myth number three, that it is somehow ungodly to be good at your work. That somehow, and I know this is probably a myth that a lot of people know have been busted personally, somehow that it's ungodly or it's God hasn't called you to be good at what you do. It is actually completely the reverse, and we see it clearly through Scripture, where, where when someone is given a task to do, I mean, there's a parable of the talents, right? You may have heard this story, where three people were, were given, you know, one, three, and five lots of, of money. Um, the one with five invests his and gets five more. The one with three invests his gets three more. The one with one does nothing with it, just sits on it. And the report of him was scathing. God has called us to be productive, to go forward, to be excellent, that if you are called to be a teacher, that you should be the best teacher at your school, that, right? If you are called to be a plumber, people should say to you that he is trustworthy, that he does well, that he brings good into the world, that he does amazing things. They would say if, if, if you are in the workplace, right, if you are a job, the people look and say, she, you know what, she comes early, she leaves late, she's trustworthy, she is kind, I can give her any task, she thinks on her feet, she is excellent at that job. She, there's something about her, something, she's intelligent, she is a force to be reckoned with, she is patient, she's determined, you know, and she gets things done. The people should look at us. If you are a Christian, you have no excuse for slackness. That's not in the Bible, this concept that we should be somehow slack or lackluster at work. We should be, in the name of God, inspired by Him and equipped by Him, excellent at everything we put our hands to, because we do it as unto the Lord. We do it as unto God, and that is our calling, to be great. And you are called in your work, whether it's a job or not, to be good. To be good at what you do. Even if, it's, even if it's simple. And let me tell you, busting these myths, your work is not your job, that somehow your work, if it's not in the church, is not, um, not meaningful or not spiritual, um, or, or, or thirdly, that I shouldn't be good at it, this should actually help you at work, help bring meaning, satisfaction to even the simplest of jobs. When you look, hey, maybe this job isn't everything I do, it's just a part of it, but also that God has called me here, He's called me to be an influence, He's called me to be a light, He's called me to represent Him, He's called me to do this work as unto the Lord. Simple or not, I can show God's goodness by the way I work. Cool? Very good. And that's just point number one, right? I've got two points to go, right? So we're going to be here for a good 50, 60 more minutes more. No, I'm kidding. Point number one, you were made to work. Point, let's go to point number two. Be faithful where you are. Be faithful where you are. Let's look back to Joseph. Joseph in chapter 39. At this point, Joseph has been, he's a slave in the house of Potiphar. And this is what the Bible says to him. It says the Lord was with Joseph. This is 39 verse 2, Genesis 39 verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph, and he was a successful man. He was in the house of the master of the Egyptian, and the master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord made all he did to prosper in his hand. Later on, he ends up in jail through no fault of his own. He Now he's in jail. So if, if, if anyone had an excuse to think, my situation sucks, and I'm going to give up on it, it was Joseph, right? He had bad brothers. He's now in a slave, and now he's in jail. This whole thing just sucks for Joseph. Um, but then what happens? Verse 21, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. Not only did Joseph work hard, but he was faithful right where he was. He wasn't sitting waiting for a great job, sitting waiting for any job. 
Sitting waiting for opportunity to come knocking at him. Sitting just thinking, hey, I just as soon as I get there, as soon as I get there, that's when I'll start working well. That's when I'll start working. That's when I'll be I'll be faithful as soon as God gives me what's really due to me. What's Joseph do? Right where I am, right here in this moment, Joseph was faithful. Do you know that you and I, if you're a Christian here, are not necessarily called to success? That's a heavy thing to say, right? So hear me out with you. You're not necessarily called to success. You see, I would love to be a successful basketball player. Some people just laughed at that. That's a bit mean, isn't it? But you can see the problem. Right? You can see the problem uh, in that I'm short, not particularly basketball built, like in a you know, physical kind of, kind of way. And I probably don't look, and I don't have this, the swagger to be a basketball player. It's some of the attitude I don't have either. So I will not be a successful basketball player. It's comforting to know what you're not good at it, by the way, sometimes. Right, there's a side point. Just drop that out there. Um, but I will not be successful in whose eyes? In the world's eyes, in a modern conceptual version of what success looked like, it is outside my control. And for many of us, the things and endeavors that we have in our life to do, if you start looking around and letting the world dictate to you what success looks like, you've got to remember that that is not necessarily what you're called to. You and I are called to be faithful faithfulness is different than to be successful. It may imply success. Often it does. Probably more often than not, it will imply success. But that's not the point. It's a byproduct. Look at Joseph. He is faithful as a servant. He is faithful in jail. What happens to Joseph? God looks at his faithfulness and plucks him out, makes him second in command of the greatest empire at that time in the world and says, right now, we can do some damage now. We can do something good. I've seen how faithful you are and we can do some damage. But then let's grant that. Let's say, okay, good, Brendan, good point. Um, Great moral lesson. I should learn to be faithful where I am. But here's the problem. Um, What if I don't really like where I am? What if my job sucks? I keep saying sucks all the time. Am I allowed to say that in a sermon? It's okay? Okay. We're on Facebook, aren't we? Um, so, hi, everyone. Sorry for using that foul language. Um, it's probably got bleated out, right? <laughs> what if my job is not good? What if my boss is annoying, right? What if I don't get paid very much? What if I'm not happy with where I live? and the oppo- I don't have particularly good opportunities. I don't even like when I'm studying, but I'm caught in it now. Um, what if I don't like my position? I I'm, I'm spend most of my time volunteering. I would love to do that paid, or I spend most of my time at home with the kids, and I don't, sometimes it just doesn't feel great to do that. Like, What if you look and you think, I am simply not satisfied with where I am and the gifts I've been given? What if I feel that way? How do I be faithful if I feel unsatisfied? It comes... By knowing first and foremost, right, and this, there's no magic to this, but God has you right where he wants you. And number one, if you know that God has placed you where you are and it's his providence, you will be satisfied with where you are. If you know that God has given you your talents and your abilities for your purpose, you will be satisfied with who you are. And if you know that God knows all of your needs, that God is your provider, you will be satisfied with what you have right? You could be satisfied with where you are by recognizing this is God's doing. You could be satisfied with who you are by knowing he has given you your gifts and your talents for your calling, for your lane. And you'll be satisfied with what you have when you recognize that God knows your needs. Because think of it this way, we're all smart enough to know this. It is an absolute lie to think that I would be happy if only If only I lived somewhere, if only I could get that other job, if only I had a bit more money, if only I had the talents that that kind of person had, 
following that train, and, 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 you know, and, and it's all based on comparison usually. It's comparing to something. And if you and I living on the Sunshine Coast or even in Australia want to play the comparison game, um, we're actually right at the top. We are right at the top of people who have opportunity, who have wealth, who have food and who have shelter and safety and all of these. We are right at the top. So don't start playing that comparison game. It's, it's, we're at the top end. It's not good for, it's not good for us right? In, that, in the comparison game. You see, once, you, once you, you recognize that God has called you to where you are, God has given you the gifts that you have, God has made you the person that you are for purpose, and maybe they're not evenly distributed, Right? Some people I look at who are just sickeningly talented, they're six, they're six foot six and they can make it in basketball. I can't, right? That's not fair, is it? It's not fair. Unequal distribution of height and talent. But, but it's actually the case. The life is not actually evenly distributed, that you have a calling, you have a lane to run in. And God has made you who you are on purpose for the tasks at hand. And they are not someone else's, they are yours. Now, a lot of this dissatisfaction that comes with that does not actually come from between me and God. It actually comes from everything else that I'm watching. If I spend 95% of my waking hours absorbing modern cultural uh, media norms, right? If I look at, if I'm scrolling on Instagram, Facebook, I'm, I'm, I'm watching the news, I'm watching all the advertisements thrown my way in this very consumerist society, if that is influencing what I think my life should look like, my house should look like, my job should look like, my family should look like, how much money I should have, how educated I should be, what my body should look like, if, if it's all, if all my expectations are set by modern cultural norms, Norms, no wonder you and I are dissatisfied. Especially if, it's, if, if, if you outweigh your Bible reading, if you do more Bible reading than media consumption, right, which I know you're not because I'm not, you would actually probably start to find that your satisfaction, your fulfillment, your resilience in the moment and the season that you are given would be so much greater because why you would start to trust God because you listen to Him the most. But we're not, we're listening to every other thing, right? And the, what is the purpose of that media, that advertisement? That's What is the purpose of that? The purpose, you know, sickeningly is to make you unsatisfied because if you're unsatisfied, you'll buy more. You start getting jealous. You start wanting to keep up with the Jones. It's a horrible trap. We get trapped into thinking, if I buy more, be more, do more, I can get it. And what it's doing, it's making us dissatisfied with the calling that God has for us in His providence. That He has placed you where you are to be who you are, to be who you are around. He has placed you with His calling. And the only way to be satisfied to that is to look to Him to spend time with him, to read his word, to go to God and say, God, could you help me to understand? I don't understand it right now. My job is hard. My boss is annoying. I feel like I'm not, I don't have enough money. But go to God with that, not to social media with that, not to the Joneses, not to the people who live around you who have more stuff than you or look like they do anyway. Go to God. God has you where he needs you. doesn't mean it's rosy. doesn't mean it's not hard. doesn't mean there's not difficulties. It just means that you and I, the only way we'll be satisfied is not by believing some lie like it will get better if, but by going to God, by trusting in Him, by believing what He says about you. Cool? Great. That's point number two. Number one, you're made to work. Number two, be faithful where you are. And point number three, you are not your work. You're not your work. So Pharaoh comes to Joseph in jail. So Joseph had interpreted a couple of dreams for some guys that knew Pharaoh. Pharaoh gets word, okay, this guy interprets dreams. Pharaoh comes in to, to see Joseph or brings Joseph out to see Pharaoh, gives him a shave, gets him out of his jail clothes and into like, you know, probably a multicolored coat or something like that. Uh, and 
and brings him in front of him to do what? To interpret dreams. At this point, actually, as a side note, Joseph, we see, is a very good manager. He manages, 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 delegates, he works hard. But what does he get called in front of the king to do? Not that. He gets called in to do something entirely different. Think about that. It's a funny thought. Hey, anyway, he's in front of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says this to him. He says, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said of you that if, if you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph says, I cannot do it. I cannot do it, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Joseph is so secure. His identity is not so wrapped up in his work, in himself. He is so secure. He is even saying to Pharaoh, it's not even me. I'm not even that good at this stuff. It's actually God. Imagine that. I know that if, if Prime Minister Scott Morrison came to me tomorrow and said, hey, I hear you're really good at this software project management thing, I'd be like, oh, yes, I'm very good at that. Like, you know, I've been training very hard. I'm, I'm the guy for the job, right? I'm not that humble like Joseph, right? But Joseph, so divorced from his identity, he could take his identity rather than wrapping his identity around his work, was able to separate and be humble. Martin Lloyd-Jones once put it, Observing the cemeteries of London, he said um, that they could be filled with the sad tombstone, born a man, died a doctor. Born a man, died a doctor. Why? Because he observed every doctor at that time, maybe modern times, not sure, every doctor at that time would, be, would just be a, a normal person until they got in the zone. Then all of a sudden, now I'm a doctor. A doctor is who I am. And they become that identity. They assume that identity, right? And that, you know... That can be fine, right? If you're good at your job, your job's good. Maybe not. But it can also be really hard to address the identity thing if you're not good at your job or you don't have a good job. I've been through seasons of life where people would say, hey, what do you, you know, because that's what everyone says. They say, what, you know, who are you? And you answer with your job, right? As if my job is who I am. That's what we all do. But it's really hard when you don't have a good answer to that question, right? Like I'm actually between jobs or my job title doesn't sound very good. It's I actually think that that is a good thing. I think everyone should go through a season where you don't have a good answer to that question because it will teach you to separate who I am from what I do. What even recommend it. If you have a cool job title, stop using it. Start using some boring one and just to, just to teach yourself teach yourself to be to divorce the two. Who are you? I'm Brendan, a child of God. You know, don't say that if they don't know you. That will sound weird. Um, get get to that later later on. And this whole identity thing, if you think about it, is probably the greatest impediment to people who, who cannot rest, right? Because, so, so God, God commanded his people to rest. Six days you should work, one day you're going to stop working and you're going to rest. The problem for a person whose identity is wrapped up in their work, not their job, their work, could be anything, is that if I stop working, it's almost like I stop existing. That's a tough challenge. You see, because like going back, right? Like, so, so when God first gave this commandment to his people to rest, um, it was a much riskier proposition than it is today. In fact, we've gone, we got two days now, sort of. Like we don't really use them for rest, but they're there. Um, we don't go to our jobs, but we, we don't necessarily rest. They, um, for the people at that time, like subsistence living and, and hunter-gatherer, this kind of thing, to not work for a day meant that I could probably go hungry that day. And I've got to trust that there's food around tomorrow so I can pick it back up and like make up for it. That's a hard, that's a hard thing. We have fridges and things today and Woolworths trades on a Saturday, so we are, we're pretty good with that. However, the thing that we tend to flaunt in our society is this idea that like we feel guilty. 
when we rest because we're so tied up in it, or, or even conversely, we don't trust God enough to let go because that's what resting is. Resting is letting go and letting God have control. Because I spend all my week, work, work, work. That is me controlling, controlling, being fruitful and multiplying. God says, hey, just once a week, stop it. Let, let go and let me take control. That's a hard proposition for many people. If you are the person who finds it hard to rest, let me challenge you. Start to think about why. Is it my identity? Is it wrapped up my identity? Um, do I trust God enough to rest? Because if you, if you don't rest, you probably won't work well. Do you know that God, uh, there's no specific commandment to the Jews to work. There's actually no specific commandment that says you need to work six days a week. It's actually assumed. But he does command them to rest. There's a commandment to rest. And it's it's a two-sided commandment. It says you shall do no work and you shall rest. As if to say rest is like this active idea. The rest must be scheduled. It's hard. It's hard to rest. And resting, believe it or not, is not this. It's not a screen. Do you know that um, modern, uh, modern psychology you know, studies recent, recently have uncovered uh, what they call the default mode network? There is a, a cluster in your brain that switches on when you are at rest, when you're not focusing on them in moments of interest, and it also stays switched on when you are being social with other people. And do you know? And, and that is a very important part of your brain to sw- stay switched on, right? Because it restores. You know, it happens during sleep and deep sleep as well. It's a restorative component to to your brain. It actually reminds you to be social and to be with other people. And do you know when it switches off? When you do this, sign. They found it. As soon as you turn a screen on, it switches off. There is a just a pervasive myth that to rest is to veg out and binge watch, that somehow that's going to help me. Tell them, kidding you not, it is making it worse. Those people, research is showing those people with the highest tendency towards loneliness are often the most engaged on social media. The very thing that they're attempting to be more social is robbing them of tr- truly resting and being social. It's robbing, it's doing the reverse. It is killing out, it's going to be a huge problem. I say it now, it's a huge problem right now of what it's doing to our world. We're trying an experiment right now with screens. and So, so let, me, let me give you what God says. Rest. Six days you shall work. Find rest. Find solitude. Find out what is stopping you from stopping. Whether it's giving control to God, whether it's realizing your identity is not in your work. Be with your family. Be with those around you. And I know I'm a parent with little kids. I know the urge to like whip, pull out my phone and like in that moment when it's bathtub time or something like that, be like, this is a good chance to check something, you know, and just trigger my horrible phone addiction, you know. It's, it's not helping. It's not giving you. It's not restoring you. Restorative rest. What you need to work well comes when you are actively, uh, you know, you are actively finding solitude, you're actively finding space, you're actively not doing work, you're seeking God and you're being w- present with the people around you. Someone here needs to hear that today because you are finding that you're getting tired and more tired and more tired. And the more you have a weekend, you feel worse at the end of it. And you need to rest after your weekend somehow because you're not resting. You're not having a Sabbath. I'm, I'm not going to go there, but it's just a prod for some people to start thinking about that. So, where do, how do I wrap this up? Um, 
Because if I was to send you a send you everyone away, all right, we're done. Cool, let's all get out of here. I actually don't if you think about it, I haven't given you a very positive message just yet. I certainly haven't given you any good news because what we could think after all this is like, okay, I um I need to what are the things? Okay, I need to remember that my work is everywhere. It's not just my job. Okay, cool. So I don't want to be engaged in that. I want to do a good job. I want to be faithful. I want to be a light in the darkness. I want to, I want to be faithful. I want to let God use me in everything I have, right? And you start to think about what I've been telling you to do today. I want to rest better. I want to give more control to God. I want to work hard. And what you could think is that I've said today is that you need to go out and work harder and work more and be better, be a better person. The problem though is that you are probably a lot like me. And you're not very good at most things. (laughs) Certainly not good at working, giving control to God, being alive, doing all those things, right? Because the Christian faith and the Christian message is not a message that you need to somehow work harder, take all of this and put it as like as shackles around you so that I can work harder, so that God will love me, so that he won't be disappointed in me, so that I can be saved and I can go to heaven and I can be a good person. If only I would work and work and rest and do, do everything right, then I would be a good person. Then I would be God's chosen son or daughter. Then I could have his favor, his attention. Then I could be saved if only I could get this work thing sorted out. But that is not good news and it is not the news of the gospel. The news of the gospel is that God has done every bit of work for you already, right? It's the greatest exchange, exchanging his work for yours. That he has done the work. He's finished. It's finished. He completed. He did it. And our work is not to not this offering to say, God, would you accept me? Here's my work. Here's what I have, like a cat bringing a dead bird or something like that. Like, God, here's my... God doesn't look at that thinking, oh, I'm, this is just what I need. I needed you to do that bit of work so that I would... Ex-. It's not at all. God did it all for you. He accepts you. He loves you. He sacrificed for you before you did a single bit of work. If you never worked another day in your life, it's fine. It's all been done because our work is actually a response. It's a response to what he has done for us. And only then, only when you see your work as a response to his goodness, to his saving power, to his sacrifice, to what he did on the cross when he died for our sin, only when your work can become that, can we be completely secure in our work and from comparison, can we be totally trusted in God and what He has for us and that we can dedicate our lives joining with God's purpose, bringing good into the world, doing great things with our work, with His healing power, not our own. That what God has done in us, we do in our work. We bring that healing. We bring joy and we bring peace and we bring wholeness and restoration to the world in our work. The simplest of tasks in the volunteering, in retirement, in mothering, in fathering, in the home, in gardening, in, converse, in, in the every, every bit of work. We join with God in that. And so today, this is a reminder for many people that God is not disappointed in all of your work. He's not up there going, yep, this is about what I expected, <laughs> about as I, you know, He's there going, I've already died for you. I've done it all for you. And I love that what you are doing. I love it. Thank you. You're doing good. You're doing good. Keep it going. Here's the thing I have for you. Here's the task I have for you. Here's keep, keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Right? You're doing great. 
But for some of us as well, maybe this is the first time you've seriously considered what it would mean to surrender your life to this message, to God, to Jesus. Many of you have made that decision. Some people perhaps have never made that decision, what it means to give my life, not just my work, my whole life, my existence over to God. So God, here it is. Here's my life. Here's my world. I want to be yours. I want to be forgiven. And I want to know your power living inside me. I want to be restored and join in that mission, to save the world, to bless the world, and that your work wouldn't be unfulfilled, wouldn't be stressful, all that. It would be peaceful and fulfilled because of who God is and what he's done in you. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.